Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 18, the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel chapter 18. Well, the showdown has finally come between David, the Lord's chosen king of Israel, and Absalom, David's son, who has driven his father out of Jerusalem and has assumed the throne himself. Both father and son and their armies are east of the Jordan River as we begin. David's men will not let David go with them into battle, knowing that his life is really the target of this war. This is a long chapter. So there is a psalm which David wrote when Absalom made him flee. And if you are able, would you please stand as I read Psalm 3. Psalm 3. Psalm 3, Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings be on your people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now that is an amazing psalm. Especially think of it as we go through the progression of the details in this wild chapter. We're actually going to go through chapter 19, verse 8. And as we do, we need to notice so many things in this story seem convoluted. How many of these events unfold in ways that almost seem unexpected or upside down or just ironic? Now, the main event itself, the rule of the mighty David is being threatened by his own son, whom David had restored to royal favor back in chapter 1433. The reason why Absalom needed to be restored was because he killed a brother who had done something unspeakable to a sister, and Absalom had taken off for a while to get away. 
David's order to his men as they go out to war here is strange. To deal gently with the young man Absalom. The battle, instead of happening in an open field which where armies can maneuver, this particular battle takes place in a forest, harsh territory where anything can happen, and in fact, it did. Absalom, the slick son with the poster boy kind of image, literally gets hung up in a tree as his mule goes under some thick branches of a great tree in the forest. And then one of David's men sees Absalom alone in this precarious position, and he runs back to tell Joab, David's commander here, the commander of David's army. Joab doesn't run to tell anybody else. He takes matters into his own hand. He defies David's orders and hurls three javelins into David's gut. During all this, the writer only gives us the facts about what happened. There is no commentary, and we don't hear anything about what Absalom may have said. Then Joab's armor bearers finished Absalom off, and they throw his body into a great pit and then piled on a great number of stones on top of his body. Verse 18 then gives us a report of another monument Absalom had built earlier in his life near Jerusalem. And that is just in there. The question is why? We'll get to the why. Then the news of this victory is delivered to David in the form of a cross-country race. Because David was not in the battle, remember his men would not put his life in jeopardy. They did not allow him to be a part. With Ahimaaz winning this little race, it wasn't little, it was a long way, but not telling all the details. Ahimaaz gave part of the story, but didn't give the biggest message that David wanted to know about. And a Cushite who came in second in the race, but he told David the truth about Absalom. Then we see David erupting into this great display of grief, so much so that his army feels like they haven't really won. His grief, of course, being the fact that Absalom was killed. So, David then confronts David about this and tells David this display of grief is not honoring his men who had just risked their lives for him. And he says, because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead, then you would be pleased. That's quite a rebuke to your king. 
So how should we approach this text? Well, with another text firmly in our mind once again, because it is the answer for most all of the questions that you may have about what in the world is going on here. And we've looked at this every week for weeks now. You should know where this is. It's in chapter 12, verses 10 through 12, where the Lord, through Nathan the prophet, tells David what will happen in David's own household because of David's own sin of adultery and murder. And there we read chapter 12, verses 10 through 12. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. In other words, publicly. That's already happened. What we see in our text today are more of the consequences of David's own sin coming to pass in some strange ways. Consequences that are part of the Lord's discipline for this king. Even though David's sin has been forgiven and put away. And, don't forget this, his life has been spared. As Nathan tells David this in chapter 12, verse 13. So the best way to see these events is through the characters in this chapter. David, Absalom, Joab, David's army commander, and those runners who delivered the message. So let's do that, because that's how it's kind of laid out in the chapter. Please follow along in your Bibles. Check the details as we go through. Let's start with what we could call David Part 1 in verses 1 through 5. We see immediately in this text, in verse 3 especially, how much David's men valued and honored and loved him as their king. They, weren't, they were not about to expose him in this upcoming battle. Then we see David giving them this impossible order in verse 5, which reads, And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave these orders to all the commanders about Absalom. Now, these orders would make sense one commentator writes, if Absalom was about to enter therapy rather than war. The orders were clear, they were public, they were memorable, they were even moving. 
but hardly wise, showing that even before the battle, before the battle, David was willing to abandon military and moral considerations in view of his own personal feelings. On the one hand, he is sending out the people to risk their lives for him and his throne. And on the other hand, he is prepared to ask expressly that his son, who is the root of much of this evil, shall not be killed. So then, in verses 6 through 8, we see there succinctly the description of the battle. In the forest of Ephraim, the servants of David decisively defeated the men of Israel, Absalom's army, because he had assumed the the throne at this point. So that's how they're designated. That's it. That's the battle. Everything else is about basically what happened to Absalom. In verses 9 through 18, then, let's look at what went on. He meets his end in a very strange way indeed that we probably could never have foreseen. All the action in this passage centers around what happens to him, but note that we never hear anything from him at all. His head, can we say, in his hair, remember the details? He only cut it once a year. It was long and beautiful. So his head, with this, what do you want to call it, conglomeration of hair, got caught in a tree as his mule went underneath it. And you're going, what are these guys? These are soldiers. This is a king. What's he riding a mule for? Because mules operate a whole lot better in this kind of territory than horses. Okay, this was rough territory. He was suspended beneath heaven and earth, we read in verse 9, while the mule that was under him went on. So can you picture that? So then we come to Joab in verses 11 through 16, part one for Joab. He enters the scene here because the soldier who saw what happened to Absalom wasn't about to disobey David's orders and kill him himself. He just saw it and he ran back to tell his commander he didn't want to take the fallout from David alone. So you can tell that not only were the soldiers wanting to be obedient to their commander, but there was something else going on here, some fear that they knew was a little off. But we also see immediately that Joab had no such reservation. None. Verse 14, we read, Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you when this soldier came and reported it. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the middle of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak tree. And you're thinking, how could anybody live through that? Most of your texts say heart. 
but there's a play on the word heart here that's difficult to reproduce in English. Literally, it means thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the heart of the oak tree. Um, Both of those words are in the Hebrew. This figure of speech involves the use of the same word in a different sense. In other words, in English, it'd be like if we don't hang together, we'll all hang separately. See how that works? Every language has these. So it's used figuratively here for the middle of the person. So the point is, obviously, if the javelins had gone through his actual heart, he'd be gone immediately. It's the heart of the man, the middle of him, is what's being talked about. Someone else writes that David would treat cancer with candy, and Joab knew it, and he knew it required surgery. And he nominated himself as surgeon here. So while Absalom most surely would have eventually died from these wounds, Joab's armor bearers come upon the scene and they finish him off. Joab did then, we read in verses 16 through 18, restrain the rest of the army his army, from continuing the battle and pursuing after all the defeated followers of Absalom. Please note that. He knew the battle was over. The question was, who could kill Absalom or who would kill the army to to kill David eventually? That was the issue at hand here. But notice what they did with Absalom's body. They threw him into a pit and piled a very great heap of stones on top. And then, almost immediately after that, the writer of 2 Samuel interjects in verse 18 information about a monument that Absalom had built for himself earlier. Do you see what's going on here? The usurper of the throne... Absalom was dishonored by being buried, quote-unquote, in a pit covered with stones, which was in itself a what? A monument declaring his destruction as an evil usurper of God's appointed king. In other words, he was a traitor. And then... That shows how Absalom's own pillar and monument that he built for himself was such a testimony to what? Absalom's pride, his arrogance, his misplaced dreams. So this is a great piece of literature here that has this this comparison, this contrast between the monument that the man actually got and the one that he built for himself. Tells you the whole story right there. And remember, you might remember also that Saul had also built himself a monument back in 1 Samuel 15, verse 12. Interesting, huh? What a display of pride and evil hearts. 
So in life, Absalom elevated himself to be remembered forever by a monument, but his death demonstrated his true legacy, sin, rebellion, and a traitor. This is again interesting in history, even in ages where people gave them their children Bible names, you just don't hear of anybody named Absalom. Maybe a dog, not a person. This should remind us of a lot of texts in the Bible, but Luke 14, verse 11 is probably the, the most precise. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And then in verses 19 through 32, the story continues with the runners, Ahimaaz and the Cushite. The Cushite was ordered to go, and he took a direct route. Ahimaaz finally talked Joab into letting him go, and he took the longer but easier route and beat the Cushite back to David. Ahimaaz was very excited about the victory in his report, verses 19 through 32 here, but wasn't willing to tell David the whole truth. Did you notice? But I don't know what it was when the king asked him, is it well, in verse 29, with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, when Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I don't know what it was. And the king said, turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside, stood there, and basically shut up. And then the Cushite comes, and he was excited as well, but answered in a way that made it clear that Absalom was dead. So the great drama here is that there was deliverance for David, but what did it mean? It meant disaster for Absalom, his son. Now, the complete victory that Jesus won for those he died for means that evil and the evil one must ultimately be done away with. Absalom was working directly against God's kingdom and God's earthly king, David. So God's deliverance of this king from his enemy, Absalom, David's own son, meant Absalom's demise. This is the theological foundation that David now will find himself wavering about. And it's important for us to see this and understand why. So let's go back to David. In verse 33 of chapter 18, the last verse, and then into chapter 19, verse 8. David erupts in a wail of grief that echoes down through the ages and has been used and quoted in so many books, writings, dramas. 
And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he wept, he said, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. O Absalom, my son, my son. This is a cry of a father who lost his son, but it's not just a cry because of a deep natural affection. There's a much deeper dimension here. And there's also the issue of a father who has overindulged this son and thus shown himself and thus shown him an inordinate affection. Inordinate meaning not exactly correct, right, on the right way. And this is where we must again let chapter 12, verse 10 and 12 that I read earlier, shed light on David's grief. Why was David so distraught that he literally could not see anything or anyone else in this situation? Because it's David's guilt that inflames his grief. The Lord's words have played out before his very eyes. David knows his own sin has set the sword loose in his household. How great and heavy are these consequences? And he's been carrying this around for quite a while. He knows he's forgiven. He knows his eternal place is in the Lord's hand. But he knows the consequences are his fault. Think about it. First, his infant son who died shortly after birth, just as the Lord had said. The infant son who was born because of an illicit relationship involving the murder of the woman's husband. And then Amnon raped his own sister, another son. And then Absalom murdered Amnon. And now Absalom was dead. That is quite a series of horrendous events. David knows that each of the perpetrators in his house was responsible for their own evil. He knows that. But he also knows that his own sin had, in a sense, started this whole chain of events. And that's why this cry of grief is so incredibly great. Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would that I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. So do you think David wished he died instead of Absalom because he knew he deserved to die? You bet. So we have a paradox here. We have a safe kingdom, but a king who is beyond grief. So back to Joab, chapter 19, verses 1 through 8. What do you make of Joab in this whole passage? The army commander. He starts off, 
by ignoring David's orders and dealing decisively with Absalom. That's an understatement. And now we see him confronting David very bluntly. Why? Because David, in his extreme grief, is not leading his people in what should be a great victory. It's his job. It's his calling. It's his office. It's God's will for him to be the ruler. And he's just not doing it at all. The army is literally sneaking back into town after this great victory. And we go, yeah, it was just a battle. Think about what's happened here. The king's son has instituted a rebellion that worked. And God used David's counselor, Hushai, to counter the counsel of Ahithophel, which would have brought an end to it. Showing God's sovereignty, his providence, and keeping David on the throne. But then all these circumstances happen as we see this, how this plays out. Let me read verses 5 through 7 of chapter 19. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. You would be pleased. You know, we can sense here in this in the first part of chapter 19 that the writer seems as the way he writes it, he seems to sympathize with David's condition in understanding his grief. But he agrees with Joab's mind at the same time. Joab is an enigma. He's both rebellious, but we also see him be reasonable. He's insubordinate earlier in chapter 18. And here in chapter 19, Joab seems to be right. Sometimes God's people need a strong dose of reality. And Joab gave it. I don't know whether you've ever been in a situation where you've gotten a strong dose of reality through a brother or sister in Christ. Doesn't happen often. And don't get me wrong, some people are not called to be that voice in place of the Holy Spirit. I know some people that think they've been called to that particular calling just because they love to shoot off their mouth all the time and tell everybody their opinion. That's not what this is talking about. 
But if you've been in that situation, sometimes the only thing that will wake you up is somebody tells you how it is when you know that you're not seeing it. There is a reason the scriptures say in Revelation 21, verse 4, that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now you notice, Joab says, Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, this is verse 7, if you do not go out, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth. Wow. Until now. What do you think? Do you hear what he's saying? The way you're acting, David... You're not a king. This will be worse for you than if Absalom had stayed on the throne and you'd been gone. And look what happens. Then the king arose and took his seat at the gate. And the people were all told, behold, the king is sitting at the gate. It's almost like, wow, it's a great surprise. He snapped out of it. And all the people came before the king. In some sense, the kingdom was hanging in the balance more after the battle than it was before. And we need to understand this because we live in a world where people's feelings come first all the time. And what this teaches us is that you may be feeling it for good reasons, but at some point, the reality of the situation has got to hit, and you've got to trust God with it. Now, if you go back and look at Psalm 3, you might want to look. O oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God. But you, O oh Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head, I cried aloud to the Lord. Oh boy, did he cry aloud. And he answered me from his holy hill. In other words, David has a paradigm shift here in what he's feeling versus what he knows is true. And he announces it. He relocates. You, O Lord, are a shield about me, his glory and hope to God. And he finds peace here instead of danger. Do we know how to do that? And then I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord did what? Sustain me. When you're in that kind of grief where you don't care about any, you don't. It's so horrible that you've already given up. You do not say that the Lord sustains you. You don't want to even consider it. 
But David's saying here in this psalm that God is the only one who can sustain me. No matter how bad it is. No matter how guilty you may be. There is forgiveness only in Christ. He may not take away the circumstances. But he will walk with you through it. And he will sustain you in it. That's the promise. So, David, as the anointed king, is also a suffering king. And here, he sheds tears for his own griefs and over his own guilt. And he perhaps even let his guilt play much too big a role in overindulgence and misplaced affection for his children. Parents, pay attention. Now we will have to wait for David's descendant to come back. The man of sorrows as described but the promise is that he will bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. Isaiah 53, 4. And we need to especially think and rely on this. Christ's victory on the cross and his resurrection makes certain the decisive end to evil the evil one, and to wickedness when he returns. You know, there are some practical applications to this that go way beyond just your family or kingdom or anything else. And we had an opportunity to um, see how this works a little bit. If you're involved in a, a job, a vocation, a ministry, where you deal with people, In our day right now, there's no regard for the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're in a position to deal with those situations, this foundational theology about the truth of Christ is the only thing that you can surely trust in to keep you going. Because your hope is not in turning things around now. Hopefully you want that. But the evil that we deal with, what we must do is see how it's part of our calling. Because Christ is the one who won the victory. We're in him. And when he comes back, he's going to make it right there might be a long time between now and back it may not be as comfortable as we'd like it to be between now and back it may be more frustrating between now and back there might not be people respond to the gospel and your 
knowing what's true and right and just between now and back. And it would be really easy to just lay down and give up. You must not. Whatever your job is, whatever your family's like, whatever neighborhood you're in, whatever you are called to do, we are called to stand and hope in Him. Because if God does bring revival back to our land again, in whatever form, we've got to be ready to train our kids and their kids to be ready for whenever that happens, to be able to promote the gospel and proclaim it the, the truth of it then. If not now, if we're not seeing the results we want now, we don't know when God will do it. But he might, and he will. And what's going to happen if everybody just rolls over and there's nobody left to proclaim the truth, to stand in the gap, to do what's right when your job's on the line, your money, your income is on the line? That's where we need to think right now it's not a very good pep talk is it it's not a pep talk it's the truth of knowing who we are in, in Christ Jesus our Lord Jesus was perfect and we killed him for it why should we expect anything else? That should be like what we expect. Because it costs something to be a true believer. The love that goes with this proclamation for people, there's no way to love the people who we would describe as living in wickedness in our time, unless you know that they are behaving exactly like sinners behave, who need a Savior. Otherwise, cut them off, cut them off, cut them off, cut them off, and there's you left, basically. When sin is rampant, it's not going to be pretty. Will you care enough for the people who are literally enslaved by sin? So much so that they can't even see out of the slavery or know that they are. We know that the only hope is Christ. That's why this chapter in this Old Testament that we're in just literally blows me away because we see real historical people a king here who went through I mean come on dysfunctional does not fit his family it's so far beyond these terms we use you can't even describe it but he knew the Lord who sustained him gave him hope no wonders there's so many cries come back Lord Jesus quickly 
come back. But in the meantime, we have an incredible calling to be a part of. And just ask yourself one last question here. Where are the people that God delivers in forgiveness of sin going to go to learn about him? What a privilege. Because we are also saved sinners. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are humbled by, again, by this part of your word. We know that sin bears horrendous consequences which helps us understand again how incredible it is that you would call us to yourself and forgive us in Christ Jesus, your son. Oh, how we love your gift. And Lord, we realize how great you are in your redemptive plan to use us, your people, to be the voices for the truth. Be the people that love the people that are so lost and maybe have never even known what love is. And Lord, we pray that those two would be those two elements would be combined in our witness. Um, and at the same time, we realize that as people are saved by the love of Christ who died for sin on the cross and rose, that, that we would recognize that there will be many haters of you. People that will not abide anybody telling them what to do or telling them what's really right, wrong, true, false their own gods with monuments to themselves in their own hearts. So, Lord, we pray that you'd gird us for action, that you'd steep us in your word, give us a hunger to know it and how to communicate it. We ask that in Christ's precious name. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him, esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Amen. You're dismissed.